nice to see you all. Welcome. Welcome everybody here in person and then all of you online. We love that you're uh, joining us from your living room in your PJs, wherever you are. Uh, we are glad to be continuing our study. As the lady said, let's open up our Bibles, if you would please, to Acts chapter 15. Is that's where we're going to camp today. And if you have those message notes that you were given when you came in, uh, you can take those out as well. And if you're new to us, what we're doing in this series is studying uh, the, the history of Christianity, really, in, uh, in its earliest years. And the documenter of the history is a guy who lived the history. His name is Luke, and he is a first century medical doctor. Dr. Luke, turn to your neighbor and say, the good Dr. Luke. Now, Luke also wrote one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which, by the way, I think I've said this before, but this was my favorite book of the Bible when I first became a Christian because I thought the Bible was directly connected to Star Wars because Luke was uh, Luke Skywalker. But I, I was wrong, slightly off on that. And it's still one of my favorite books, but for different reasons. Okay, so where we are now in our study is in chapters 13 and 14, our two heroes, Paul and Barnabas, have just completed the very first missionary journey ever made by any Christians, taking the gospel into new places. These two have been traveling for nearly two years. They've covered 1,700 miles, and now they've returned to their home base, their church in the ancient city of Antioch, which is in modern-day southern Turkey. Now, the highlight of the tour is the fact that in all these cities they visited and preached, all these Gentiles started coming to know Jesus, which was a very unexpected twist. They didn't think this was going to happen, but it turns out the gospel is very applicable to people, even without Jewish backgrounds, which is what Gentiles are. And so Paul is presenting the gospel uh, to all of these crowds in such a way that anybody, regardless of their background, can believe in Jesus and receive grace and redemption and salvation. And it's amazing. It's an amazing thing. And now, back in the home-based church, everybody's rejoicing. I mean, people are giving high fives, chest bumps. Uh, I mean, it's really an exciting time. And everybody's happy, except not. Not everybody's happy. Uh, let's read about this. Some were deeply troubled by all these Gentiles. Let's read now verse 1, chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers there at Antioch, the church, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Whoa, okay. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dimension, uh, dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Okay, let's just pause for a second. So as I said, not everybody was happy about the Gentiles. The Gentiles, what do we do with the Gentiles? The Gentiles, all these, all these Gentiles. And there were some that were actually pretty upset. There was this vocal sort of percentage of Christians that had come into the Antioch church and they came from a more strict Jewish perspective, these guys. They were Christians, but they had a, a strict Jewish background and they were passionate about this. They were like, hey, what you're preaching, Paul Barnabas, is not right. That's not the real gospel. This faction, their version of the gospel, they said, no, and they contradicted Paul. What did they say? Well, they said the gospel is a different gospel than what Paul had said. So what we get in Acts 15 then is it's a theology debate. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> 
So it's, it's, a, it's a detailed, drawn-out debate, but it's an important debate. It's a heated debate about the gospel itself. What is the gospel? What isn't the gospel? How does a person acquire salvation in Jesus? And this is an important debate that goes to the very heart of Christianity. Christianity's young. Christianity's about to explode. It already is starting to. And so there's implications. And so this is like passionate. On one side of the debate, as we said, there are some Jewish Christians who come from specifically the, the sect of Pharisees in Judaism. Now, the Pharisees, you may be familiar with this term. These were um, a group of Jews in the first century that was like a denomination, and they were really strict, and they were really like law followers, and they loved, they loved to write commentaries about the laws of Moses, and then they loved to argue about the commentaries. That's where these folks were. I mean, so that gives you an idea. Now, Paul came from... The, 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 the group of Pharisees himself. So he was very familiar with the mindset and the background because he was kind of like, like the top-ranked Pharisee of his time. He was, in fact, officially ranked number one. Uh, I'm kidding. There's not such a thing. Come on, guys, let's go. <laughs> the background of these guys, though, even though, again, they were believers, they struggled a lot with grace. They didn't understand grace. They came from law and rules. And now there's this grace system and it was like this is this is a tweak. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> this is a tweak, right? We just ah, it doesn't feel right. And so they said the gospel, now this is the Pharisee Christians. They said the gospel is faith in Jesus plus circumcision plus Jewish food law plus Jewish calendar observances. And so, but when it says that in verse two, when it says these guys were saying you can't be saved unless you're circumcised, what they meant was all the Mosaic law, not just circumcision. And so that included kosher diet, going to different festivals and feasts that Jews were required to. It included things you could wear, things you couldn't wear, things you could touch, things you couldn't touch. All of the ceremonial law, the purification law, that's what they were saying. It was Jesus and all these other things. And they were saying specifically this applied to the Gentiles. Gentiles cannot be saved unless you believe in Jesus and you also become Jewish. And this was a sincere argument. This is what they really thought. To be fully included into the people of God, you cannot just have a bunch of pagan, idol-worshiping, blood-eating, you know, little unclean Gentiles running around who eat pigs and pork and bacon. That's not going to do, they said. So this was like a big deal. And now, it came at precisely this time in the history of the church because up until this point, the church was mostly Jewish people who had come to know Christ. There was a few outliers, but the population centers that they were preaching the gospel in were mostly Jewish. And so now, though, things changed as a result of this missionary journey, right? Acts 13 and 14. Uh, there's all these new people coming to faith. Again, these uncircumcised uh, pagan worshipers. And now this is an issue. What do we do with these guys? And so their version of the gospel we could summarize is Jesus plus Moses. Jesus plus Moses. This is one side of the debate. Jesus plus something else. By the way, Christians today do a version of this, and Christians have for 2,000 years. We always get into trouble when we try to add stuff onto the gospel. 
a Jesus plus framework. We have our different versions of this in modern times, but we still slip into this from time to time. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It's a Jesus plus the way I vote. It's a Jesus plus, uh, I don't know, like style of church. Jesus plus contemporary music. Jesus plus old time hymns. That's real Christianity. That's what it really means to, to follow Jesus. It's Jesus plus, and then it's usually the plus is whatever the preference of the Christian is. That has nothing to do with the gospel. So we do this all the time. So we gotta kind of relax on these Pharisee Christians here in, in Acts 15 because, uh, you know, mea culpa too, right? Right? So. So, but that's why this is important. Now, Paul and Barnabas immediately push back. Paul's a hard no on this. Paul's just a just a immediate nope. Nope, that's not what the gospel is, bro. Nope. I mean, if he were Dwight Schrute, he would be like, oh, the gospel is Jesus plus Moses? False. That's false. That's false. That's what Paul would be. So they were arguing about it, debating about it, and they couldn't solve it in Antioch. So they decided to take the question to the headquarters which was in Jerusalem. Uh, the apostles, they were in, in Jerusalem. This is a 300-mile journey, so off to Jerusalem they go. They all want to hear what the apostles who had personally walked with Jesus felt about these issues. Their, the apostles' voice was crucial uh, to them, and something this important, the definition of the gospel, could only be settled by those that Jesus had personally discipled himself. By the way, this is the same format that we use today when there's theological questions or even debate. We go back to what the apostles said. We consult their scriptures, their writing, and then we make, uh, we make our, our, our solutions. We make our, our, uh, our doctrine from what they said. And so this is essentially uh, still continuing. All right, let's read a little bit further now, now that we're on the way to Jerusalem. So verse 3. So being sent on their way to, by the church in Antioch, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all these brothers. This is different churches on the way from Antioch into Jerusalem. Uh, they're stopping and basically having fellowship and telling testimonies. Verse four, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So this is, again, a, a recap of, of the side of the debate that the Pharisee Christians were purporting. Now, verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in... The early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter is referring specifically to Acts chapter 10 when he preached the gospel to a Gentile named Cornelius and Cornelius came to faith. This was the first Gentile that came to faith. And so Peter is referencing a previous uh, part of the book of Acts we've studied. Verse eight, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us and he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, Peter's saying, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke 
on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. And here's the mic drop. Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Ah, thank God for verse 11, yeah? Thank God for verse 11. How will we be saved? We believe we will be saved by what? The grace of the Lord Jesus. So this is the other side now of the debate. Remember, we have a theological debate. The lines are forming. We have, obviously, Paul, Barnabas, now Peter, a little bit later in this chapter, James, this is Jesus' kid brother. Jesus had a half-kid brother. He had several. One of them is named James. James comes over to this side and agrees with Peter. So Paul and the apostles are on the other side. Again, there's some unnamed Pharisee Christians on one um, uh, side of the spectrum and the apostles on the other. And then Luke tells us the process. After hearing all the arguments, Peter, the spokesman, stands up and delivers the verdict to everyone. He says the gospel is not about what a person should do to obtain salvation. The gospel instead, Peter says, is good news about what has been done for you by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Pharisee side is saying, okay, faith plus do this, do this, don't do this, believe this, uh, say this, don't say this, go here, wear this, don't touch that. That's the gospel, they said. And Peter said, no, the gospel is not about all the do this and don't do that. The gospel is, it's been done. It's been done, final, 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 final by Jesus. Thus, the ruling is, let's summarize it. Salvation is not something a person achieves Salvation is something a person receives. You receive salvation from Jesus as a gift. You don't earn it or acquire it by complying with a bunch of rules and regs all the time, by working hard or by having a painful medical procedure, at least for the adult men, as an outward symbol. (laughs) The gospel isn't about attaching bits and pieces of, of Mosaic law onto the work of the cross. The whole point of the cross is when Jesus was on it, he declared, it is finished. And he meant it. And the apostles recognized this and they settle the debate here in the Jerusalem council. A few years later, uh, when, when this all kind of simmered in Paul's mind and heart, Paul would write about Acts 15 and this verdict, this theological milestone, he would write about it in his letter to the Romans. He captures the essence of Acts 15 and the gospel of grace in one of the greatest sentences that has ever been written by a human being in the history of time. Romans 3, 23 through 25, Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This, my friends, is a beautiful truth and reality that has changed countless lives, including my own. You have the gospel. We're all sinners. We all have sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. But God rectified this by sending his son 
by his grace, by his blood. And then the last part of this is our part of it, to be received by faith. The gospel is to be received by faith. Receive, turn to your neighbor and say, receive by faith. To be received by faith. To be received by faith. Not earned by works of the law. The work was done by Jesus. It is to be received by faith as a gift. Receiving isn't earning. Receiving isn't working. Receiving is accepting the work that was done by another, the perfect Lord Christ. Now, you're still involved in this. It's not like you sit there like a blob and are just like completely uninvolved and you don't know anything or do anything, right? You're, you're not just sitting there with no awareness or understanding on your part of what's happened here. So there is a response required, but the response is an acceptance of a work that's already been accomplished and you receive it by trusting that it's real and it's for you. Now, let's, um, let's illustrate this. So has anybody here been to the new Winco grocery store here in, in town? Why are you laughing? I didn't think that was funny. I, I don't get Rose Burgers uh, all the way yet. Is that what? <laughs> I don't know if you're a Sherms person or a Winco person. I think it's divided the town a little bit. I don't know. This is a big controversy, so that's not what this is about. So let's just say a person goes to Winco and grabs a shopping cart and goes down all those nice, new, clean aisles and carefully picks out just the right ingredients, the following ingredients. Flour, just high-end flour and some of that Dutch processed cocoa powder and sugar, that high-end sugar and those fresh organic raspberries and that heavy cream. Oh, God bless the 40% milk fat heavy cream. All the dairymen, give me a... And then all of that fancy Irish butter, all the things, the eggs, and I mean the works. Oh, and the fancy Swiss melting chocolate, okay? Let's go there. And they pay for everything, right? They get all these ingredients and it's a lot because this is bougie stuff. Okay, and so it's a, an expensive trip, but they go home and for hours they work and they bake the most amazing chocolate cake, beautifully crafted. Oh, it's perfectly moist and with the raspberry filling in the layers and the buttercream and it's frosted just to, I mean, all the artwork, it's there. Hard work, skill, craftsmanship. And then the person carefully wraps that up and drives to your house and rings your doorbell. <laughs> and you're there. And you open the door, and there is this person standing there with a pink box, a pink box, and it's held out right there at your threshold. And you have a decision to make. Does this person have the wrong house? All right. <laughs> is this for me? And then you have the decision to accept the pink box into your arms. That is the gift of salvation. You receive it by faith. It's offered, you receive it. So the apostles said, that's what salvation is. That's what the gospel is. And the apostles also said, we're not, we're not gonna put the burden of the law on these poor Gentiles. We're Jews. We've had the law for centuries. We can't even figure out how to do it. What chance do they have? So we're not going to to just like put this burden, this yoke on them. The gospel removes burdens. It doesn't add burdens. We cannot live by the law. We fall short. We fail. 
So why would we turn around and make a big, fat, huge mistake and require it from other people? And so they tap out of that and they, they move into grace. So this debate got settled. They, they talked it out. They argued it out. They actually searched the scriptures. We didn't read this, but the next little paragraph in Acts 15, the kid brother of Jesus, James, he comes forward and he says, okay, hey, guys, I found some scripture. And he talks about a scripture from Amos that, that the prophet Amos foretells that Gentiles would be coming in mass to Yahweh. And he's like, this is, this is in the Bible, guys. This is in the Bible. The, God told us that the Gentiles would be coming and this is the, the prophecy fulfilled. And then Paul and Barnabas come along and they're like, yes. And our experience in these towns in the Roman Empire squares with what the scripture says. The Lord pours out. I mean, we tried to preach to the Jewish people in every synagogue. They booted us out. But as they're kicking us out, man, all the Gentiles were like, hey, tell us that about Jesus thing again. And so everybody's like, wow, this squares with scripture. This is, this is consistent with your own testimony. And so, and so they're like, this is God. And it all aligns. And then it got settled. And here's a miracle. They all agreed. It didn't split the church. It didn't tear, tear the church apart. Can you imagine a church all agreeing on something? <laughs> in Luke 22, I'm sorry, uh, in verse 22, Luke says, so Acts 15:22 Luke says the apostles the elders and the whole church said that this was good. This includes by the way the faction of the Pharisee Christians who were on the other side of the debate a few minutes ago. So they came around. Everyone thought it was good to keep the work of salvation squarely on the shoulders of the perfect Lord Jesus, the risen son of God, God's only begotten son who was who died on a cross, was buried in a grave and resurrected 3 days later. And the apostles crafted a letter that gave their official stance. And then they sent this letter with Paul and Barnabas and other representatives back up to the church in Antioch. They made the 300-mile journey back up. Uh, and I think, I think this is what was happening there, that there was a bunch of Gentile men in Antioch who were Christians waiting to hear if they were going to have to have male circumcision. Thank you. You captured that. This guy groans. My brother. I know. They're like, are we going to have to do this? Can you imagine the party in that church when they read the letter? Like, yeah, yeah, we don't have to do that. High five. And also grace. Um, so this is a very important watershed moment in our church's history the church, the Christian church's history. And the outcome is why we are here today. Most of us, I think all of us. I mean, we may be a whole room full of Gentiles. And we wouldn't be here, most of us, if this weren't, if it were the other way. We wouldn't be singing amazing grace. We would be singing amazing circumcision, which doesn't really work <laughs> musically or practically. I'm going to keep making circumcision jokes until everybody laughs at them. <laughs> oh, my wife is saying, you need to move on. <laughs> Amen. All right, what I want to do now is, <laughs> I want to, uh, I'm not going to push it. Uh, I'm going to spend a few moments with you doing some theology with you. 
So let's, <laughs> yes, theology, yay. Uh, I know that that can be intimidating for some, but I, I, I think it's uh, from time to time worth uh, exploring. And so let's call this a theological interlude. And I want to work on a question that's related to what we just covered here in Acts 15. It's a question that many Christians have. It's a very good question regarding this thing in our Bible called the law. All right, there's a ton of biblical material about the law. The law of Moses, uh, Deuteronomy, which is a book that is the second giving of the law. And then there's books that are the first giving of the law. And so there's it's such a prominent chunk of our Bible is this thing called the law, which by the way, we just learned doesn't save us. It doesn't save us. So why, why do we have it in our Bibles? Like, is it, is it really worth keeping? Uh, a related question, what place does the law have in the life of the Christian, if any place? And what do we do with it? Again, we just learned we're saved by grace, not through the works of the law. So, so why is it in here? Should we toss it out? Should we toss it out? Actually, there's a famous pastor in America who wrote a book about five years ago. He went on a national book tour, and it was his book was all about getting rid of the Old Testament. He wanted to chop off the Old Testament and only use Christians, use the, the New Testament. And a lot of us looked at, the, looked at him and were like, man, you just went off a shelf, bro. But why? Does any of this apply to us? And when we, when we consider the law, sometimes when we read the Bible, we get a little mixed up. For example, in, in Psalm 119, uh, verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And then a little bit later, Paul says, for the law brings wrath. It's like, well, which one is it? And so there's a lot going on with the law. So Christians have questions. So here's our approach. We don't take, we don't take the approach where we just chuck it. That's a bad idea. In fact, quite the opposite. Hear me out. Here's our approach. We love the law of God. Oh, the law of God is, is precious. It's, it's beautiful. The law of God is how we understand the very character and nature of God. He gives us his law as a signal to his purity and his righteousness and his, his infinite holiness. And so we appreciate the law because it, it helps us to see who the God we serve really is in his core, in his heart of hearts. He's holy. He's good, infinitely good. And so we appreciate and love the law for this. Our love for God and our understanding for God is grounded in this holistic understanding of the law. On top of that, we appreciate and love the law because this summarizes God's will for humanity. I mean, in a perfect ideal sense, it is a description of how God created us to live. This is what God says life is supposed to look like. And he gives us the law. The law is God's standard for our lives. And so we appreciate it from that perspective. Jesus actually told us to love the law. He said, the law summarized is the very definition of love itself. The laws of God tell us what it means to love God and what it means to love our neighbor. If you don't love the law, that means that you don't think it's important to love God and you don't think it's important to love your neighbor. And that's not where we're coming from. And so we appreciate it, not because it 
It, it's our mechanism for salvation, but because we learn about who God is from his holy standard. Now, there is also three ways in which the law is very useful to the Christian. And what we do is we separate all of those 630-something commands into different categories. And the categories are roughly, and the reformers did this, the Swiss reformers did this, the German reformers did this. The law roughly parses out to three categories. There's the moral law of God, there is the ceremonial law of God, and then there's the civic or political law of God. The, The civil and political side of the laws of God are specifically applicable to Israel as a nation. And so therefore they do not have any applicability for us. The ceremonial laws are all about purity. The sacrificial laws are included in that. None of us are purified by any laws because we're purified by faith in Christ. So the, pure, the purity laws, the ceremonial laws don't apply to us. They have been abrogated or, or rendered obsolete by the sacrifice of Christ once and for all. What remains then is the moral law of God. And what the reformers did is they said, there's some value for the Christians in the moral law category. The moral law is summarized in the 10 commandments. And so it's a little bit easy to wrap your head around. This is in Exodus 20. The first four are the first tablet relate to how we, we organize ourselves towards the Lord. And then the last six of the commands, or the second tablet, is how we relate to one another. So while it is not a means of salvation for us, God's moral law has three functions in our lives. The first function is the law convicts us of our sin. The law brings awareness of our sinfulness. When I was a teenager, I was pulled over by a McMinnville, Oregon police officer for speeding through town. He came up to my car window. I rolled my window down and he said, do you know what the speed limit is here? And I had just happened to pull over right by the Dairy Queen there in downtown McMinnville. And I pulled in front of a posted speed sign. It was five feet in front of my car. And it said 30 MPH. And so I looked at that and I said, well, yes, officer, I do know it's 30 MPH. He said, you were going 48 and a 30. And he proceeded to write me a $1,000 ticket. Oh, I forgot to mention I was 14 years old and driving without a license. (laughs) The, The law, the law is like that speed sign, right? You get an awareness of where you are on the standard because it's there. How are you going to know you're speeding if there's no speed signs? This is, and again, an illustration of the moral law of God. The, the moral law of God establishes a standard of righteousness that is impossible for humanity to uphold, as we've said. When people try to follow the law, they become unaware, sorry, they become aware of their inability and their shortcomings. And the law exposes the true intent and the sinfulness of our in- internal selves. And when we recognize our sinfulness, that we cannot meet God's standards, it drives us into the arms of a perfect Savior, Jesus, who offers us grace freely. We put our faith in the one 
the Savior, the one who has met the standard, Jesus. And when we're in him, we righteously, through Jesus, fulfill all of the requirements of the law. So the law brings an awareness of our need for Jesus. Paul writes in the book of Galatians a little bit later that the law is our tutor or our pedagogue. It's our mentor that, that teaches us that we need Jesus. The law brings awareness of our sin and our need for a savior. That's the first function. The second function is, is civil or political. The law helps to restrain sin. God's moral law has worked its way into our society and it's become the basis of many of our societal laws law and order in civil society, which this contributes to the establishment of social order and justice. Knowing the consequences prescribed by civil law for certain actions acts as a deterrent. So when I got the $1,000 ticket for all my squirreliness, guess what? I never did that again. I remember standing in front of the judge, the McMinnville judge there, and there's probably only one guy at that time, and he's looking at me, and he's like, what were you thinking? And I was like, I have no excuse. And he goes, well, instead of the $1,000 fine, I'm going to impose a 1,000-word essay on you. One word for every dollar. Seemed pretty fair. And I had to write a, an essay about why I did what was wrong and why I'll never do it again. The law acts as a deterrent, theoretically. Theoretically. Laws help create a structured society where individuals are held accountable for their actions, thereby reducing chaos and promoting peaceful coexistence, theoretically. Many laws are also designed to protect the vulnerable, ensuring justice for those who may be exploited or harmed. And this protection helps restrain sin by holding individuals accountable for actions they may, that may harm others. We know that this system is flawed. I'm not sitting up here saying that this is perfect. Of course, the system always doesn't work properly or doesn't always work properly, and we must be continually aware of this, and we must work on making this better and more just for all. But I also don't think we should toss it out. Much more could be said on this point, and before I get into some political hot potatoes, let us move on to the third. The final use the law guides Christians how to live our, our salvation. Because we are filled with the Spirit, because we are free in Christ, and because we are rich in all these things, the law shows us how we can live rich towards one another. The law for believers guides us into living out and walking out our salvation in Christ. The law is useful for us. It gives us a roadmap for our sanctification. But the law, although it guides us, the law does not finish our faith, my friends. Jesus does this, and only Jesus. On the cross, again, he said, it is finished. He's not leaving anything to be done. He's done everything that the law has demanded. Jesus has paid the consequences that the law exacts from the sinner, and he's done it for my sake and for your sake. Christ fulfills the law completely. 
And so we must never confuse function three with it being a mechanism for our salvation. And this is what we slip into, legalism, a legalistic viewpoint of the law as Christians. And we must resist this constantly and remind each other that the law is beneficial for us, the moral law for our sanctification, but not our salvation. It is only efficacious in helping us become more like Jesus, not gain heaven. Only Christ's work on the cross can do this. The law never replaces the gospel, but when it tries to, the law is never satisfied. It is never enough. And the gospel comes in then to rescue us and fulfill the law. It's the only thing that can do so. Commands cannot produce what they demand. They only expect it. And so, friends, we must never slip into pharisaical Christianity or legalism In our faith, we must never confuse function three with being our means of salvation. It can never, ever be. What do you think about these things? I'm going to pray for us. Bow your head with me, please. Lord, I thank you that the gospel sets us free from burdens. It doesn't add additional ones. It doesn't add the burden of the law. And this includes, Lord, how the gospel sets us free from beating ourselves up from guilt and shame. And so help us daily to be reminded of your grace, Lord. Your grace is sufficient. The finished work of the cross is sufficient. Help us, Lord, to live in that reality. Lord, help us to not become legalistic Christians. Help us not to try to replace and shoehorn law observance for the free gift of your grace, Lord. And Lord, help us also not to slip into just an anything goes thing where it's like, ah, no big deal. Sin is whatever. And treat your grace with contempt. Lord, help us to walk the line of being gospel-centered and thankful and grateful for what you've done on our behalf. And so, Lord, we come to you now needing your grace. We need your grace, Lord. Help us to understand the usefulness of all the scriptures, including the law, but help us keep the categories straight in our heads. And Lord, it's by your grace we do this. And so I pray for all of us that we could walk with you in love and freedom. And I pray these things now in your beautiful name, in the strong name of Jesus. And we all said, amen.